This is the No Switch Fitness Podcast. We want to help guide your journey into developing your best physique. With your host, Luke Miller. All right, guys, welcome back to the No Switch Fitness Podcast. I'm really excited for today's uh, episode. Um, today we have on a fantastic guest and Alex Bovin. Um, he is an independent investigator and has been doing research in our field for the last five, six, seven years and um, has a very deep understanding in everything periodization, programming, and resistance training. So welcome to the podcast, man. I'm excited to have you on. Appreciate it, man. Happy to be here to discuss some, some variables. So real quick, let's just kind of go through like your background and like, you know, some of your research interests and, and things that you that you have spent time looking at in detail before we kind of hop into the conversation of, of what we're going to talk about today. Sure. Um, so my research um, that I've either assisted on or been a main contributor with as a like original author or investigator kind of all over the place. Um, it started out very human performance related, which is kind of like what we're here to talk about. So um, rugby players, football players at UCF, um, training them and, and doing all sorts of human performance related, trying to get them bigger, stronger, faster. Um, working with PhD students on, and doing their research. And then I kind of went into the clinical exercise physiology route, working okay. at uh, Advent Health. So uh, special popula- uh, populations, obese people, diabetics. Um, taking muscle biopsies from them and looking at the muscle tissue. So the very hardcore basic sciences. And then with my grad degree um, that we might get into and talk about, that research was very, very much uh, resistance training. So it's all resistance training, but not necessarily sports. It's kind of general pop and CrossFit, actually. So uh, it's kind of been a lot all over, but a lot of it has been focused, especially the last uh, recent years, in resistance training people and improving their physique. Yep. That's awesome, man. And I think that in order to facilitate this conversation moving in the right direction today, we need to lay out some, some definitions for the audience as far as periodization goes. So sure. let's, let's go ahead and lay that out, um, periodization, and then we're going to kind of jump into periodization in terms of muscle growth and some literature behind that, and then then we'll mm-hmm. transition to takeaways. But let's set the framework for everyone and just start to, to lay some, some groundwork for this, this conversation today. Sure. Yeah, I'll give you my uh, kind of a couple different definitions for periodization and okay. maybe you do, too. So maybe we can agree on one or, or the other. So yeah. uh, periodization, quite literally, is just a systemic manipulation of training variables. So um, that could be, you know, brought, broken up into different phases. Uh, periodization is, again, uh, everyone has heard this by now, but if you haven't, it's not a program. It's not a set stone program. There's not a periodization system. Um, we've heard um, the classic periodization, traditional periodization. We have undulated or daily undulated, um, which are different things. So it can undulate a million different ways. There's reverse linear. So periodization in, in a nutshell, again, is a systemic manipulation of training variables over time. So it's a way we lay out training. Um, so would you agree with that or do you have a slightly different? I would 100% agree with the systemic definition of it just because I believe that periodization gets often defined as this one set structure in which we train in. And it's more of a, I don't want to say an auto-regulatory form of managing training, but that's how I believe periodization should be handled. 
And so sure. I typically always add an autoregulatory term to the, to the definition, just so that the audience understands that it's not this like, you know, five, three, one thing there, whatever it may be that they've read in an yeah. article, right? It's, it's something that's conceptual for us to understand and apply to individuals across the board. And that's, I think that as we kind of move in into defining this for muscle growth, which I do think would be appropriate to kind of transition into, um, needs to be understood. Sure. Yeah. So whenever, if you're listening to this podcast and you hear something periodization, whatever it is, periodization, it just means that it's probably a well thought out program with, with, with um, manipulations and deloads and things kind of brought up in a different segment. That's kind of what, what we're talking about here. Um, something's being manipulated. So that's kind of periodization of the definition, a uh, very loose definition. Um, moving into a hypertrophy periodization model, um, we're using all the tools we can to build muscle that we know works and some theories and some nuances into a program because we can't do it all at once. So we're trying to periodize and, and use specific blocks of training to get everything we can out of building muscle. Um, so we have to look at all the literature we can about periodization to draw some conclusions as well as a lot of theory and nuances. And that's why I think this will be an interesting conversation because there is no exact formula. It's just, okay, it kind of goes back to what are the me mechanisms of muscle growth? What do we see working? For the past 10 years have been looking at research papers or trying to decipher research papers. Um, a lot of things have changed and we will get into that. Uh, things like regional hypertrophy and variation. And now we have some better answers and maybe we can talk about that next and how, how we take this periodization definition and make a hypertrophy model out of it. And people listening to this can kind of take those and, and draw up their own program. And that's kind of the, the thing is everyone can make a week program, but how do you make a month program or three month or six month or year program? Yeah. And that's kind of what we're, what we're after. Right. Yeah. And one of the big things I'm very, very large on is like, I love keeping my, my thumb on, on the literature, especially like with the research background that I have, but it, it is something that helps us guide our decision-making and it's not something yeah. that defines our decision-making which is a very important aspect for people to understand is that, you know, we don't cherry pick studies. We try to look at, at studies across the board. We have one that we're going to kind of bring up. That's a newer one. It's a 2020 D'Souza paper. Um, we've touched on the podcast before. Um, but my, my reason in saying this is that there has to be a bridge in like, where's the specificity in which the research lies into the application of the sector in which you're in. And there's sometimes a miss a miscommunication in which, depending on the community in which we're talking about, which for for me and a lot of my people is very very end range bodybuilding, and it's very very high level bodybuilding, right? And sometimes we get that miscommunication, and we're going to kind of try to bridge that gap today with not only a discussion of the research portion, but how we can take that out into that. So let's let's start with some comments on the D'Souza paper. Um, it, it was a good read, and it was a good paper. I think there's some some things we need to discuss within it. Um, we had three groups there, 12 set, 18 set, 24 set. And I'm gonna let you kind of take it away with some of the things you had thoughts on um, because they've, they've listened to me for a whole podcast on this paper before. So I'm gonna let you kind of take this, take this off. Okay, um, I wanna make sure we're looking at the right paper as well. Um, the Suzuza paper I have, I know he has several papers that are follow-up studies looking at this um, kind of same, uh, similar variables uh, with periodization models. He's very obsessed with periodization. 
Mm -hmm. And he does a pretty good job with setting that up and, and trying to control as much as possible. The one I'm looking at here is for, from 2018. Um, okay. It's a 12 week training um, entitled different patterns in muscular strength and hypertrophy adaptation. Um, is that similar to what you're looking at? I'm looking at the one from 2020 progressive resistance training volume, um, but we can definitely okay. ask that one. I have read that paper. Um, I'll pull it okay. up. Actually, you go ahead and kick off. Yeah, no worries. I think the paper you're looking at was um, they increased volume like quite a bit and they try to progress by volume. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we can talk about that one as well. Um, so I guess we'll start with this one. Um, and the reason being is this is a pretty recent paper. It's a follow-up paper. Um, this paper looks at um, two different periodization models and one control. Um, and I really like the way that it was set up um, because the control group trains how a lot of people train. They, they just did 12 weeks of basically three sets of eight or two sets of eight for their exercises. And that was it. And just straight sets. And they try to progress those, uh, you know, the, the uh, overload, but they didn't increase sets or anything like that. Like the load is pretty much the same. Uh, so three sets of eight, three sets of eight, increase load, but keep it three sets of eight, right? They did a, um, a classic periodization. So that was control group. Now they have traditional periodization where they did um, about four weeks of sets of 12, and then they did four weeks of sets of eight, and then four weeks of sets of four. So you have that increase in load and decrease in volume. That's very traditional periodization. Then they had an undulated periodization that had a little bit of linear in there. What I mean by that is the first six weeks of this group, they did sets of 12 and six. Then the next four, uh, four weeks, they did sets of 10 and six, and then they did sets of eight and four. So it's still linear, but they kind of undulated. Um, so if you're on the, the volume wagon, which everyone has been, and I would love to get into volume because everyone fucking has it wrong, in my opinion. Um, you would think that since volume is going down towards the end, that they would get worse with, with muscular adaptation. So you're starting with higher volume and going lower, right? Well, as I think Greg Knuckles has coined a while back, hard sets are really what sets you apart. It's not necessarily total volume load of everything, it's the hard set. Um, so what, anyway, the takeaway of that study, at the end of that study, they trained for 12 weeks, um, the results are very similar across the board. So it's really about the total amount of hard set and how hard you're training through that periodization model. Now, what's interesting about that study is that the last six weeks of the periodization uh, groups got more growth. It was very small, but this is a 12-week study. So they saw more growth in the periodized. The non-periodized, the ones that did sets of eight, or I'm sorry, three sets of eight, straight across the board for 12 weeks. They couldn't keep doing that. So the last six weeks, the volume kind of fell. They just couldn't keep up with it. They got worse results. So the volume was very similar across the board, even with the, the set, the control group kind of failing out at the end there a little bit. But the ones who got the most, most growth were the ones who buried their training towards the end. So they increased load and they decreased, decreased volume. And we can go into all sorts of tangents about why that is. But I actually kind of modeled my uh, periodization programs after this. I was doing a little bit of that type of training beforehand. Um, so how I do my training is very similar. I, I do blocks of training that are about six to seven weeks and then a deload of, let's say, undulating something between 12 and 10 for like a large movement. 
And then after that deload, I might repeat that again. And, the, and then I will move into something like tens and eights. And then I'll do that for maybe another block and then deload and get into eights and sixes. So you still get this linear, um, but I think you get more growth that way because you're potentially stimulating more motor units and more muscle fibers. Um, but I don't know, how, what do you think about that study and, and that kind of regimen? I think that <clears throat> this is a classic example of something that gives us information to use, but not might not be a direct correlate, correlative to how we program um, in the sense that one thing that may need to, we may need to set the framework of is does volume level adjust across those within the way that you apply it. But for me and my perspective, we can look to take load sets at certain points within programs for higher level physique athletes, but it's not something we can necessarily always run a six to seven week block of. And the reason that I say that is because those people that I typically deal with that are, you know, that entry level national competitor all the way to IFBB pros, um, their quality of their sets and the amount they're able to get out of every single one of their sets is very high. And because the stimulus per set is very high, there's also an associated systemic fatigue that's, that comes with that out of their ability to take a lot out of the set. Now, if we start programming these blocks where we're progressively getting into heavier load sets and six to seven week periods, what I have seen with longer periods of like alternating that eight to four rep range is that the, just the fatigue accumulates too fast and we run into issues in, in being able to manage the volume level. So I think we need to set a framework for volume within this, this model first, and then possibly discuss where the takeaways are within that. Oh, totally. And I think this is, again, where periodization really shines. Is, um, I used to power lift, or I would say I pretended to power lift for a while. And um, yeah, you, you can't lift sets, you know, 85% and up for long periods of time. Um, doing sets of five, four, triples, doubles, singles. Um, and I think, you know, Schoenfeld has a couple of studies out and he corroborated a couple other studies where they've equated volume and you can do sets of three and one shit. And as long as you equate volume, you get good growth. Cool. Well, you can't do that for a long period of time. I've fucking, I've tried it. You, you just can't. You, you break down, you get injured. Um, so, which means you just have to take more deloads. Well, if you're taking more deloads, it just takes more time away from shit you could have been doing and growing. So can you do heavier and heavier sets? Yes. If you enjoy it and you're built for it and you can get away with it, go for it. Um, but most people aren't and they can get more out of, um, you know, sets of 10 and 12 for squatting, um, stuff like that. And I'm not saying 10 and 12 for squat beats eight, for example. Um, and again, get in, and get into my, my mentality of years of kind of training and trying things. I think, you know, a good number for uh, axial loading exercises like and, and just bigger compounds like uh, benches, bench variation, squats, squat variation, barbell lifts, you know, deadlifts, RDLs, those large mean potato exercises, they should probably be around sets of 8 to 10. Because uh, when you get to sets of 12 to 14, that's a horseshit exercise. Uh, your fatigue will shit out, you know way faster than you can actually handle the weight. You're just too tired systemically. Uh, your cardiovascular system can't catch up. But sets of eight to 10, it's a good kind of takeaway there. Maybe even sets of six then before you deload. I do agree that if you're, if you're doing sets of six and, and triples, 
Um, you cannot do that for six to seven weeks and then at your block. It's, you can get away with it for one block and you'll be fried. And your next block, you're like, why am I doing this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that this is an interesting concept that I frame on uh, alongside with Nick Gloff uh, on a spectrum, right? So we can look to see like people are going to fall somewhere in that spectrum of like being able to load very heavily within these patterns and still manage the recovery capacity to the people that aren't going to be able to manage load like that and are probably going to have to train with a little bit more volume. Um, depending on like, is, given that all set factors are equal in their execution and, and ability to take it to the to the house and things along those natures. Um, and, and what what makes me curious is when it comes to to muscle growth, and we might be able to pull this out is in my opinion, I, I term volume as like a, a dose of a medication. So when we when we apply it to a program, the medication is set quality. Um, and, and, uh, how, how close you're taking it to failure. Um, so within that, within that set, um, and then the dose is how many times we were able to do that. So it's not the actual solution to the problem. It's the, how much is needed. So when you get sick, you take a minimal dose. If it doesn't help you get better, the doctor will bump up the dose. It's the same concept, right? And that's how I view volume within that, that framework. So when it comes to physique athletes, do you see a necessity for this fluctuation in rep range or should it be covered within a program across possibly all exercises? So if I'm understanding correctly, um, I guess the question would be, what would the, the volume slash rep range be for based on like a, a methyl cycle or like should, should we undulate within or what rep scheme should we do? Like, you better clarify that for me. Yeah, for sure. So like when we are associating these, you talked about these different blocks within rep ranges. Let's first sure. play the framework if volume changes between those blocks and how it does. And then okay. what we'll do after that is can we address this within a program by maybe touching all of these rep ranges across different exercises and then going from there. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, so I think there's not like a necessarily huge wrong way. I think that, and some people are, kind of um, experimenting with this. I know James Krieger, I uh, follow a lot, a lot of his research. If you don't check out Weightology, it's great, great, great stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, there's a few, things, a few things we have to think about here. It's very complex. Um, it is to me because I'm a psychopath. So um, on one range of reps, let's say, and a study came out recently where we saw like 40 uh, RM. Uh, rep max versus like um, eight to 10 versus 20, 30. And, and they looked at muscle protein synthesis and growth responses to that. And the, the higher, the way, way higher end of that, like 40 rep max, you're just not growing optimally. They were not it, like, we know that pretty much for a fact at this point. Yep. If you add in what for restriction training to that higher end rep range, then you can kind of accumulate enough metabolites that you begin to stimulate more motor units and it comes a little bit closer to higher intensity. So why I'm bringing this up is because um, within a program, you only have enough time and resources to do specific. You can't do it all. Right? Um, so we have to be very specific on the rep ranges that we pick and are they giving you the most benefit for when you're training? So I'm of the belief, even though I've seen lots and lots of research, and I agree that if you equate volume within these constructs of you know sets of three to 20 um they're very similar with like hypertrophy they're only similar in hypertrophy 
if you're an untrained person training for 12 weeks, that's what studies really tell you. They're not these drawn out studies with trained people. So we don't really know. We have a very good idea though, based on muscle protein synthetic, fractional synthetic rates and growth uh, that we've seen via ultrasound. But now even like Cody Hahn's looking at stuff like edema and sarcoplasmic stuff and it's beginning, becoming more complicated. Um, so I don't think that all reps are equated equal. That's what I'm getting at. I don't think they're all exactly. I think they're very similar. So like eight, eight to tens are very similar. Six to eights are very similar. So when I undulate, I try and keep things very similar within. And my undulation patterns really are there for me to not be bored training because it gets very boring to possibly recruit some more muscle fibers than I, than I was before, possibly. And three, to help with fatigue. So if I'm doing sets of eight on one day and sets of 10 the other day, I think the fatigue changes a little bit, meaning you're doing a little bit more volume here. It might be a little bit harder, maybe, possibly. Um, but that being said, since I like to keep things very much similar, um, and I've begun to experiment with changing the rep ranges for certain things. So, for example, cable flies, I'm not doing sets of eight. It's just not going to work. Um, so I'll do, I'll experiment with, exposing chest fibers to sets of 20, 20, 22, 23 in there, and then doing heavier work with sets of eight to 10. So I'm undulating between those, between a microcycle, which is one week for many weeks. Um, now you can, and I've heard people doing, like they wanna hit all these rep ranges in one day, right? Like one, like I'm gonna hit my sets of 20, my sets of eight, my sets of four in one day. And uh, I guess you call it pyramid. Like if you can pyramid like that, that might be a way, like maybe. Um, and I get pyramiding, meaning you start at 12 and you like drop set and you go down to like three. But really you're just fatiguing yourself. Um, it's not the same as, as stopping your training and, and hitting all those. So it's it's very interesting. What do you think about that? Because there's a lot of ways we can set it up. <laughs> yeah, so let me, let me set the framework for a definition real quick and then we'll go. Um, okay. So when I turn microcycle, like most people term it within a week, I term it within a rotation of a, of a setup. So I, guess I like that. Some of my rotations are eight day rotations or they're nine day rotations, depending on, you know, how long it takes them to get through all their sessions. So that's how I term microcycle. Um, so within a given rotation or a microcycle, I think that these rep ranges could be addressed for a body part across different sessions, but it not, might not be able to within a single session. So an example of this might be, and, and this is partly a product of the athlete that I work with the most. So let's keep that within, within the framework here, um, is that, you know, when I come in and it's time to load a hack squat, that's my day to take my load sets and take it to the house and, and, and take those opportunities, right? I might be able within that session to later go on to a quad extension, like you mentioned on a single joint pattern and do like 12 to 15, or I might choose to do 15 to 20s. However, I think the program needs to be set up. Now, within that rotation, I'm going to be probably doing another leg day unless it's just a special situation, right? And it's probably going to be a little bit more hamstring focused where I'm taking my load opportunities for hamstrings there. I might be taking my metabolite accumulation slash cell swelling opportunities with her quads in that moment. So I might be programming 15 to 20s or even up to 25s for whatever the quad involvement pattern is within that hamstring-based day. And that's where I think we might have an opportunity of still getting the benefit of every 
portion of the rep ranges that are viable sure. with hypertrophy, according to research, right? Um, but still allowing for recovery capacity to progress performance over time because we're not taking load opportunities in every session. Yeah, I agree with that. Does uh, that, that make sense? sense? Yeah. Yeah. And when you say um, your, your microcycles, I'm, I'm assuming that kind of came from the origin of things don't fit that neatly in a week all the time. So legs push, pull off, legs push, pull off, may spill over. So you just say, hey, we're calling this a microcycle. This is not a perfect week. Right. Yeah. And I just, I just think that's a more accurate representation of the program, right? Like, yeah, I've got some people that run a nine day rotation. I'm, I'm running, I, I'm not right now, but I have been running a nine day rotation. Right. So um, I think it's more accurate to view it within that. And, and if you're, if your microcycle is expanded to nine days, you might have a opportunity to get a third day and for a body part depends on where your frequency volume landmarks are, you know, but mm-hmm. I think that's a more accurate term for microcycle before. Sure. It goes too far. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Um, so basically kind of going back and kind of covering what we just talked about. Um, so you can, you only have enough time and, and resources to train a specific way in your, in your, in your training session. So if we only have enough time and so much volume, but you want to train across the spectrum, we, we want to try and tra- train in the four to six, the 68, eight, the eight to 10, the 10 to 12, all the way up to 20, like even for legs, like some crazy people want to try set the 20 for leg press. I think that, I think you should try that, but you can't do it all in one day. So how I paradise is kind of based off that model we talked about is I try and fit a decent amount of undulation with, with rep patterns that are decent enough spaced out, but not crazy. Uh, like you just talked about, like go to, go to town on this, these heavy load movements, maybe even leg press to your sets of, sets of eight to 10 there. Uh, maybe even close to six um, if you're really going to town. Um, but then when you go to your single joint and exercises, even like lunges, you can kind of stretch it out to maybe set to 15 and hit more of the metabolite um, and stretch under load and those sorts of things. Um, but you're still missing out on some other rep ranges. So what do we do? So that leads me to the next block of training. So after we train for X amount of time, let's say five to six weeks, deload, the next time we train, I may take the squats I was doing for sets of 10 and start out at sets of eight. Now, one cool thing about doing this, and this is why I do this in in the literature a lot, is um, it forces you to overload. So what I mean by that is if you're doing sets of 10 and you're doing 225 and you've been trying to stay away, you know, you're you're listening to to your podcast and all these great guys say you want to stay away from failing, right? And Luke Miller's a smart guy saying stay away from failure most of the time and you know, Michael's tells genius to stay away from failure a little bit. So you're intimidated of putting up a lot of weight all the time once a week to do what you can. When you go to step eight, you are, you're not starting at 225 anymore. You're going to have to start at 235, 240, somewhere in there, 245, right? So you force yourself to overload, at least in that sense. And now you're going to do your sets of eight. And even though you've decreased reps, it might encourage you to go, oh, this isn't as bad as I thought. Now I'm going to do a couple more reps. So that's just a little portion that may, a little trick they do in, in the literature of forcing people to overload is to do like a, a linear periodization model with a hypertrophy model. So um, in, in some aspects. So I kind of like that setup. Now I'm not saying you have to start at, you know, original traditional periodization and the original 
uh, traditional linear periodization is sets of 12 for readiness and then going into straight strength training, like 12 and then six and then power. Um, no, like you can start at to, to do your 10s and 12 and then move on to 10s and 8s and then go back to 10s and 12s. So at the end of the year, you're looking at this. Uh, I've, I've worked at these different intensities and different rep ranges and progressed them because you can't do it in one day in one model. So that's how I looked at it. Is after six months, did I train enough at, at my 8 RM, uh, at my 10 RM, my 12 RM for those exercises? Gotcha. So you're comparing... You're comparing your block to your previous eight to 10 rep range block. And you're comparing your like yeah. from block to block. You're progressing rather than like a session to session type of a, a viewpoint more so oh, within the block session to session. Yeah. Right. But you're more comparing like when you take the change, you're comparing how that block goes progression wise to the last time you were in that rep range of the block. Correct. For sure, that is definitely a, a variable that I want to look at, and I, I encourage everybody who starts a program to go. Here's what I started with my 10 RM this week, and then progress, progress, progress. Here's a triple progression: add load, add rep, everything. And maybe six months down the road, you know, four six months down the road, you come back to your 10 RM. If you're not stronger, then you know something has gone wrong. Um, right. <laughs> like you're probably not, unless you're extreme elite. Um, you should have increased strength there a little bit. Um, that's a good good indicator that you've added some tissue. Um, so that that's partly you know what we've been explaining and talking about is is kind of fitting in and periodizing rep ranges. Um, there there are other things that we can periodize too. So rep ranges and undulating those in the block I think is important. Um, and we talked a little bit about that. Um, another thing I like to periodize is not just reps but exercise selection. Um, I think it's very important and we have some studies that show that like very clearly that exercise selection and varying your exercise um, is extremely important for uniform hypertrophy throughout the muscle. Um, for example, quadriceps. Um, if you just did squat and that's all you're doing, even if you equate the volume, you're not hitting all the heads of the quad. We know that for a fact. And this is deemed regional hypertrophy, which is um, growing muscle in a very specific part of the muscle. <laughs> so growing a little bit of tissue in, in specific areas. We're, we don't completely understand it, but we know that muscle action, um, like eccentric versus concentric, varying load, uh, varying angles, exercise selection, all kind of create this weird atmosphere of uh, regional hypertrophy. So that being said, if we all accept a different exercises, the muscle a little bit different, we should be varying those when necessary throughout a macro cycle or mesocycle. So um I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, but that's definitely in, in my model of hypertrophy. No, yeah, I think that I think the regional hypertrophy uh explanation and exercise selection is a very astute way of explaining it, right? I think the problem that we might have is that there's not a very deep, as you had mentioned, a very deep understanding of regional hypertrophy at the moment, right? Um, I think mm -hmm. the best that we can do in defining regional hypertrophy is looking at muscle action and its influence across different patterns and making sure we cover the main base patterns of muscle action for each body part that we're looking at. Right. Um, and we can, this, that could go down a, a whole other podcast of like muscle action versus muscle function is the underlying things that are allowing for function operating at their full capacity. If not, what do we need to do for that? And does that change the macro cycle 
um, within the exercise selection and, and looking at that, but that's probably a different discussion for a different day. What I think is, is important is trying to address each action within a pattern within a given micro so that it is touched within each microcycle or rotation is how I typically refer to it. Um, so that even though you might not get it all within one day, we're touching each action within within a microcycle. And that's typically how I view it. And um, I think that one of the things that might be misunderstood and 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 is this concept of um, having to body part train is is starting to go out the window. And it's I really like it, but I do think I do like that it's getting out the window and more for like integrated training and probably like your PPLs and things like that. I do think we still want to address as much action within a session that we can. So that's loading a mid range, loading a shortened range, loading a stretch range mm -hmm. if possible. Um, and, and doing that for each body part that we train within that day for the session. And if we can do that within session, then we can take care of doing that for other patterns that are going to address different actions of that same muscle group in a different day. But I do think that we still need to address it within single session of, of covering that um, across the rep range. Yeah. So uh, you're, I think what you're saying is um, basically hitting the muscle at different um, throughout its strength curve for different yeah. rep ranges. Um, yeah. Correct. So yeah, I've actually started incorporating some of the stuff and I know uh, John Meadows talks about it quite a bit. Um, yeah. And I think that's really important as well. So if, if you're not familiar with this, you know, listening to this, basically it's, you know, very simply throughout a range of motion, you are naturally going to be weaker, stronger, weaker, stronger, weaker, stronger. Usually you're, you're stronger and then there's, there's a weak point and then you're stronger. So we're talking about peak contraction and we can go into the heavy, you know, biochemistry of it, but that's, that's the very simplistic form of that. So for example, when you're bench pressing, there's going to be a hard part <laughs> and a, very, a lot easier part. And usually people are very easy at locking out. There's a bunch of reasons why a lot of it's mechanical advantage. Um, so how do we change that? And, and we can do that by loading the weights differently, um, focusing on different ranges of motion. Um, I've just started doing this in my own training now, like very specifically with, but it's not my whole training session. And I think that's the way you're getting at is like your whole training session should not be focused on me doing lateral raises right here in this top motion. You know, it's, yeah. um, I think it's important. And I actually, I had this um, thought process yesterday as um, what do you do when your volume, you're right at the cusp of your volume where, and you're elite, we're talking advanced, all right, like advanced trainers and trainees, excuse me. And they're doing almost as much volume as they can handle and recover. So their maximal recoverable volume, uh, yeah. Pat tip, Mike Israel. And what do you do from there? So you can, it's very hard to increase reps at this point. It's very hard to increase load. You can change exercises up, but at this point, adding extra set is almost out of the question. So what do you do? And I think what we're just mentioned can be a great place to add those. So you can't, you don't feel like doing a whole extra set or two sets of what full on lateral raises is in the card, but picking out these little tiny exercises where we're focusing on these little areas and loading the bottom of, you know, an exercise, the mid range and, and things like that can really help because it's not very fatiguing, but you fucking feel it like crazy. 
And I think it, I think playing with a strength curve like that can definitely be a part of everyone's model. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we can use tools like when we get to that point, like we have to ask first, ask the question, um, do we have volume manipulations we can make first? So can we pull from stronger body parts to add to these weaker body parts without overly changing the total volume that's being trained? If that, if that car has already been played, right, then we can look to this for like intensity techniques so that we're not adding a full set. We're not garnering the full fatigue of a full set, or we're addressing it by training different portions of the range of motion. One that I really like to use that I pulled from DC training is adding a loaded stretch. So it's literally just spending time in that stretched position um, when we're at the end of a training cycle or the end of a training block when we can't handle the volume or recover from the volume that is coming with uh, an additional set. Now, I do have a follow-up question to this because I'm curious. When we pro- when we look at volume on a spectrum for someone across a program, are you a fan of progressing? And I think I know the answer to this, but I want your answer. How much progression in volume do you think needs to happen or if any needs to happen at all? That's the question, man. That's the, uh, that's the, the ultimate, ultimate question. question. Right? I think whoever answers that, the internet will just break and like the sun will explode. Um, <laughs> no, I, I honestly think that there's, there's two ways to look at it. Um, and I think I understand Mike Israel how he came up upon his way of progressing by set. Um, and if you don't know what we're talking about, is increasing sets every couple of weeks or so, and aggressively pushing set more than everything. Um, I think, and I came upon the same conclusion doing my own training, which was I, I wanted to train at let's say three sets of eight and ten for most of my, my exercise flexion, right, for a period of time, let's say five weeks before deload. I knew that I can't start at three sets of eight from a deload. Like going from a deload to three sets of eight was too much, too aggressive. So I would do an intro week of two sets of eight with an RPE of like six to seven. And that was a good entry le- intro level um, into the next week of doing three sets of eight, meaning I, I would get less damage, uh, muscular damage, and I would uh, it'd be easier to recover from from going from an intro week of, of a deload of doing almost nothing to straight three sets of eight with RP of eight with me. Um, so I do an intro week of two sets and then three sets. Now I'm at three sets. I'm training within that volume for the rest of the time. And I'm only focused on increasing my reps and my, my load. Um, some things I think are inappropriate to increase reps, which would be um, axial loaded things like RDLs, again, bench pressing, things like that. I think is, you shouldn't be increasing reps on that because the whole purpose of the exercise is the load. So you need to increase load when you can. Um, now, that being said, before my next deload, I will push volume the week before to overreach. And I know there's not a lot of overreach data, but there is a couple overreach studies, if you look for them, that show that people who fucking push the envelope got an increase in growth more than the other groups did a couple weeks later. Like, they had to test weeks later. Um, and it, it makes you feel like you're, you're actually doing something and not being a bitch the entire time training. Because if, if I was doing three sets of eight the whole time, and then before deload, I go, I might kick up an option, do four sets. I'm like, oh, I wasn't that bad. I'm like, okay, well, I might start my next routine going, you know, in four sets of eight. Right. So the answer to your question is 95% of the time, I'm, I'm only in, trying to increase uh, load on most of everything. And single joint exercises, things that are inappropriate to increase load, I'm increasing reps. 
So triple progression, meaning um, for lateral raises, it is too aggressive for me, my tiny body, to go from sets of 10 to 15 and 15 to 20, 20, 25. That five increment is too much. So I can do sets of 20 and get a giant pump, uh, lateral, uh, lateral pump. And for me to go to, all right, I got my set of 20. I'm going to back down to uh, 18 reps and do 25. I can't. It's not, I'm going to have to do sets of 10 or something. It just doesn't work, right? So most of the exercises that are single joint, zero exercises, I'm increasing reps until I get to a certain point, and then I'll restart my rep range. Um, I don't think it's, it's warranted to increase that very aggressively and proactively because it just doesn't make, it doesn't hold water. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Um, one follow-up question to that before I comment is you mentioned keeping RPE around eight in that first week. Are you progressing RIR across the block too, or RPE, sorry? Yes. Um, so most of the time I'm, I'm keeping, you know, RIR, uh, RPE, um, fairly constant. So I, I don't want to fail anything. I, I don't like failing unless it, I planned a one exercise that I know I'm going to use failure with. Right. Other than that, I'm keeping everything shy of failure. So I start my blocks at six to seven. Then after week two, I want to be at between seven, uh, around eight. I want to be around eight. And within my set, that's going to change. That's probably, let's say, um, let's give me an exercise. We'll use lateral delts. So I just use this. My first set of lateral delts while I'm in the middle of a block is going to be, I'm going to try and be at eight. My next set, I'm going to probably try and be at nine. But I know that if I if I do nine again or try and go for the same reps, I'm going to fail. So then I'll usually have eight. So it might look like RP8, RP9, RP9.999, and then RP8. And I decrease, I kind of drop the, the reps a bit. That way I'm keeping my average there. Now, as I get to my last week, I will push near failure. I will come very close or I will fail. Yeah. So that may be where we differ a little bit because for me, um, one of the things I found is that uh, set quality is probably of the utmost important. This is an anecdotal observation. This is just, I'll admit that. Um, sure. Set quality is one of the biggest things that I, I think leads to progress for an individual that is more advanced. So within that, um, I, I'm not a big believer in keeping RIR across a, a training program for, for, for long. So what it may look like is like a baseline volume week. So deload where RIR is in play. A baseline volume week where it's a little bit lower. Um, there's RIR present within probably around two reps in reserve. Um, just to set form, set the logbook, go from there. And then the progression within week two is a removal of the RIR for across the board. Um, now, with that being said, this is contextual to the exercise, right? Like you're not going to dump a back squat off your back every time you back squat. And so that might be a more accurate representation of like, if you're free bar back squatting, you know, it might be every time that we train, it might be an RIR of one because you're not going to the bottom and dropping it off your back. Right. But within that, I, we are training with really close proximity to failure because with the more advanced people, the effective reps terminology that we see utilized within as far out as like five RIR, that window of effective reps is essentially narrowed, 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 narrowed the more training age that we get. And if we're not training within what I think that narrowed effective rep range or narrow effective reps um, 
range is for that individual, then we're not garnering a stimulus that's going to promote hypertrophy. And I think that that uh, effective rep stimulus is a lot closer to failure than has been discussed for advanced individuals. So for me, my volume progressions across the training block are very auto-regulatory based on someone's ability to, to recover. And there will be volume progressions within that, but it's not across all muscle groups. And it's not across all patterns. So it may be something like, okay, so we're, we're making progressions across the board. Everything seems to be recovering really well. Lats seem to be recovering a little bit better than the rest of my body parts. Let's add a set or two sets there to lats, but not across the board of on, on all set sessions, right? So that may be a little bit more of an accurate viewpoint of like how I view it because for the majority of my people, they are more advanced physique athletes. So they're, they're, that effective reps window, I don't keep across a training block. Yeah, um, I'd actually probably agree with uh, mostly, and I'll, I'll give you a little nuance on it. Um, so I think, I, I do think you're right. And I think antidotes are important in bodybuilding because research only goes so far, just a guideline, right? And um, I think that the more advanced you are, whether you're on gear or not, um, you need to train very, very hard. <laughs> like, like no doubt you need to train hard. And I am a big fan of going close to failure or to failure during certain specific um, points in your training. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Cliff Wilson and mm -hmm. his bodybuilding. Um, I've talked to Cliff a couple of times. He doesn't really post a lot about this because he knows he'll get black. And um, I hope that I'm not speaking for him, but I will say that he has seen some anecdotes where his best bodybuilders that he's worked with, uh, natural and not natural. Um, they do kooky things that seem kooky on the outside, like with a research perspective, like they'll go in and they, they kind of lose program and like, oh, I'm going to do, I'm going to do 10 sets of 20 leg press today. And they're like, what the fuck? Like, I would never tell them to do that. Like, why? You're just going to blow your volume out of the water, do all, but they end up being the best. And they end up having, I'm not saying, you know, they could be a special population or something, but taking some of those anecdotes you've seen and other bodybuilders have seen, it's probably noteworthy to train pretty close to failure sometimes. Um, that would, I, I know I can't put like a exact number and all that stuff to it, but um, I will say regarding that is closer you're training to failure, uh, the more fatigue you're going to generate. So if you're starting out your blocks close to failure, you could be cutting your block short because you can't maintain it. So if you can gain some momentum and get some easy, small uh, increases in muscle protein synthesis on, on the front end and try and push that so you can train harder later, a little bit harder later. And I'm not saying RP sixes and sevens and things are easy. RP eights are extremely difficult, but don't go to failure. Um, that's kind of like my, my, I keep that in mind because I know if, if I train hard early on for a couple of weeks with my block, that it's going to generate too much fatigue and I'm not going to be able to make it through the end of training very efficiently. So I think there's this probably what we're saying is probably very similar and there's kind of a middle ground there, but we have to choose. And it could be some exercises um, like squats and stuff like that. Heavy exercises, you stay away from failure for sure. Uh, a couple reps away um, and other exercises you can, fucking go to town on they can go to failure on lateral raises and get away with it um so there's some nuance there for sure yeah and i think there i think that nuance is why we had these discussions right because 
Um, I would, I think, it, I think it's a little bit more black and white than the entire session needs to be RP eight, or a little bit less yeah. black and white than the entire session needs to be RP eight, um, or that everybody needs to train at RP eight to start a block out and then move forward, or everybody needs mm -hmm. to train at failure and move forward. Right? Like, it just depends on the person. I just my general trend that I see outside of the research and in, in, in the clientele that I work with is that when we focus on set quality over everything, mm. we get the best result and we can manage volume according to the recovery capacity up or down, depending on how they're recovering. And that's where I, I currently stand because like exercise phys literature is so much fun to read and it's so much fun to be a part of. Like if you've done it yourself before, it's, it's great to do. Um, it just does miss the boat with some populations. For sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, literature in general is mainly short term. It's untrained population. Um, there's limitations across the board. Um, you know, the duration of studies are so short, it's hard to discern. Sometimes we don't get any, any you know significant differences right um so it's hard it's hard to pull from all the data so that's why discussions like this become extremely important after your basics understanding because that only gets you so far right. um so yeah absolutely and there's there's even some psychological discussion you can have there right like some people might not be able to psychologically handle like training that as close to failure as i do and some of my clientele do that consistently right and if that's going to prevent you from progressing, then by all means, like you need to find a different way to get better. Right. And I am a hundred percent for that. Like the psychological uh, discussion is not talked about enough in which we have to find how an individual can progress the best for themselves. Right. Because we're so concerned with what is optimal. Right. And, and optimal yeah. look different for the individual. Um, but with where I sit today, I don't see enough literary evidence that is specific to my population to, um, pull back on them across the majority of a, a training block. Fix it a little bit. Technical difficulties. All right. Sorry for taking this because we're back. So continue. Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess basically in a nutshell, I mean, we may have to come out with a lot of like a mini series on periodization and kind of what different variations and, and variables and, and all that. Um, there's definitely not one way. Um, no, no. I hate when people see like DUP and they think, oh, I have to do the DUP or I have to do a, the linear. Um, no, you should take away the variables and put together a program that makes sense for you. And Another thing we can get into next time, perhaps, is uh, something I call specific block training, um, which is taking blocks of training and devoting more volume towards, you know, specific body groups and body parts that we need to get bigger because um, we can't do it all. And you certainly can't train with as much volume as all your body parts need at one time. So there's always something on the back burner. Um, so, yeah. Um, I, th I hope I've answered a few questions. <laughs> I know oh, yeah, I think this was great. I think this is starting to like conceptualize, like we have a lot of factors and variables within play and how that's applied to each individual is going to vary very much, but we need to understand the core concepts within literature that is, like we said, that is going to help guide decision-making 
um, and then take that and apply it and apply it in different manners and different ways and talk to people who have applied it in different ways and see how their results have been, right? And this is the beauty of it. Like I could be completely opposing viewpoint of someone and still have a great conversation with them because we understand that there's a lot of variables to manipulate and that their way of manipulating variables is maybe different than mine, but that we just kind of find the common ground of, okay, I could see how that works, but it may not be the way that I see things working, or it may be exactly the way I see things working, right? And that's the the beauty of it. Um, is there any kind of like last thoughts you want to leave the audience before we before we hop off here? Um, yeah, so I guess to kind of put things together is um, if you're still doing like bro splits and things of that nature, or you're not, I, I run to a lot of people who, A, they don't know what periodization is yet, which is totally fine, understandable. And B, they don't structure their training in a way that's uh, efficient at all. Like, and there, there are things we don't know, but there are things we definitely do know. And one of the things that became a definite for me over over the years of training, like a bro to more, more science-based is taking deloads appropriately. Mm-hmm. And people still run their eight to 12 programs or whatever. And by week eight, I see these guys in the gyms hating their lives. And they eventually will take a break when they have to. If something gets hurt or they're so spent, they're just like, I don't know, man, I got to find another program on bodybuilding.com or something. Um, and then they take like a week-long binge. So you're going to take a deload whether you like it or not. Um, you might as well have a systemic way of manipulating those variables in what we call periodization. So, um, yeah, I, I think we touched on a lot of points for people to digest and kind of just think about. Um, and perhaps we can have more videos of how to break down specific things. And um, I know this is kind of unspecific for some people. It might be confusing. So I hope I've kind of made things a little easier to digest, which is my job. (laughs) Yeah, I think think what we'll need to get into next time is within specific block training is deloading and what that looks like and how do we determine deloads because determining when the necessity of a deload will be contextual upon the goal of the time, like, contest prep versus off season versus what's in play variable wise. So uh, that'll be a kind of a good discussion to wrap it up. So Alex, man, thank you so much for coming on. It was, it was a pleasure talking and um, I, I know the audience will enjoy it. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. Thank you.